we have what we have in agriculture in the U.S. Southwest because of national policies that got us to where we are. Exporting hay to Saudi Arabia yeah, uh, and actually ownership of farms in Arizona and California by the Saudis. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy looking at the like the water level, you know, the historic water level and where it is now, just like, you know, how, how low Lake Mead is. Welcome to What About Water. I'm Jay Famoyetti. I'm here to bring you two summer episodes about the Lower Colorado River Basin and all of the water issues we've been facing there over the past few years and even over the last few months. It's been incredible to watch how quickly things are unfolding, how quickly policy is changing, how quickly allocation discussions are fired up and then ramped down. And this is all against the backdrop of a mega drought and the need to produce food for the United States and actually for the entire world. So at the end of the summer of 2021, I took a trip down the Colorado River with a German documentary crew. And we visited all the hotspots like Powell, Lake Mead. We stopped in Phoenix, we stopped in Las Vegas, we went to the Imperial Valley. Here's an excerpt from one of those documentaries called The Fight for Water by DW Documentary. What for decades was seen as a visionary idea for the settlement and future of America's Western states has become their Achilles heel. And if you take a look on Google Maps and at my position right now, you'll see that just a few years ago, I would be underwater right now. So this is where we're at. Once upon a time, Lake Powell was full to the brim as far as the eye could see. Originally, the reservoir was to protect the entire West Coast from the threat of water scarcity. That was the plan, at least. The Colorado is drying up. One of the most contentious issues is how we divide what's left, how we avoid completely wiping this river out. To understand why this is so hard, let's take a step back in time. About the time America's coming out of the Civil War, the federal government decides it wants to explore and expand the country to the West. It commissions John Wesley Powell to go and explore the Colorado River. He's a geologist, he's a soldier, he's even lost an arm during the Civil War. Powell takes these epic journeys down the river, through the Grand Canyon, comes back and he says, hey look, this is a non-starter. This place is, is way too arid, it's, it's just too dry. At best, each state has to live within the boundaries of the freshwater it has, within its watershed boundaries. Otherwise, there will be massive fights. Did the U.S. government listen? Mm, hell no.
By the early 1900s, the U.S. government totally ignores John Wesley Powell. Farmers move in, they grow vegetables, they grow hay, the feds build canals to pipe Colorado River water to farms in low-lying parts of the California desert. Farmers open the canals and use gravity to flood their fields. That's where we get the whole measure of water in acre feet. An acre of land, roughly one football field, covered in a foot of water. John Wesley Powell say 150 years later, if you looked at our mega dams, at our shrinking reservoirs, today we pipe most of the Colorado River's water to farms. They were first in use. Now they're first in water rights. California and Arizona grow 90% of winter vegetables for the continent, but roughly one out of every three acres in their irrigated fields grows alfalfa, the Southwest's top cash crop. Imagine John Wesley Powell looking at field after field of deep green alfalfa in the desert. Alfalfa that only grows there because we open the floodgates and cover those fields with Colorado River water multiple times per year. For decades, Alfalfa slurped through more water than any other Colorado River Basin crop. And even in this mega drought, the U.S. last year still shipped nearly 3 million metric tons of alfalfa overseas. The top buyers, Saudi Arabia, Japan, and China. As we ration water and limit development. Cows overseas eat fresh hay thanks to the Colorado River. The kicker? We went and named Lake Powell after a guy who never would have approved of any of this. Our producer, Megan Miskowski, drove along the river's path through Nevada, Arizona, and California. She stopped at the Hoover Dam on Lake Mead where the white bathtub ring shows a river that's losing its water. I'm in the parking lot at the Hoover Dam and it is really packed. It's Memorial Day weekend. I think that might be part of the reason why. There's some winding stairs I'm about to climb. If you've never been here before, it's very rocky. A little bit of brush, but not a lot. All right, so right now I'm above the dam, and it's just incredibly huge. You really see the bathtub rings. You really notice them from here. Uh, I'm Aaron. Joe. And why are you here at the Hoover Dam? Uh, we're driving home from Vegas and decided to stop and see it. Okay, cool. Nice so you, you live in Las Vegas or Phoenix? In Phoenix, yeah. okay. So, um, this is a water podcast, so I have to ask you, how do you feel about, you know, water situation, water politics right now? <laughs> well, we live in Arizona, so don't we get water from Colorado? <laughs> Off the Colorado Yeah, yes. yeah, so. Well, I mean, it is amazing. 
<laughs> it's a lot bigger than what you see in like pictures and the movies and things like that. Just how massive the structure is. Look at the engineering uh, marvel, right? So this is one of our iconic engineering feat or accomplishment for America. So, and the other reason it was shot, it was um, shot in a James Bond movie. So <laughs> that's another reason too. They're both crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well. It's one of the natural. It's one of the wonders of the world. So it needs to be seen. Yeah, same. Uh -huh. We're gonna be this close to to Las Vegas. We gotta come see the Hoover Dam. It's sure. crazy not to be, not to get that far close, that close to it, not to come see it. So. Totally. And can I ask where you're from? Kentucky. Okay, Kentucky. so this probably looks way different. I'm totally. from Illinois. This is way different. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you tell me about that? Like, how does this like landscape look to you? Culture shock. Yeah, culture shock, big time. I mean, it's like another in, planet. Yeah. <laughs> about like being on Mars. <laughs> it's absolutely like being on Mars. Um, so, we actually live in Vegas. Um, my husband's military, so we're here because of him. And so, my family's visiting from Canada. Yeah. So we thought it's been it's been too long since we had a trip, so we decided we were gonna come and see them. Yeah. Oh, cool. And you know, what do you think? Is this your is first, this your first time? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's pretty like extraordinary. This was like top three on my bucket list of things to do whenever we came to to Vegas. So, the scale of of this place is just immense. It's just. You can't capture in words. It's just mind-blowing, yeah. really. It feels like we're in one big rock. Yeah. Like you look all around, <laughs> and it's just like rock. Maybe. Same as is. We're, we're East Coasters. We're, well, Georgia, where it wasn't a problem. So coming out here, it's a different way of living. Very. It's, uh, it's interesting to see a different lifestyle where water is a, it's a resource that you have to, you have to think about. Uh, and seeing, like, this place where it all comes together, Colorado comes down to here. You can see, like, Mead, where it was at, and... It de definitely makes your daily life activities uh, a little bit more important. Definitely, totally. definitely makes you think a little bit more as to human waste of water as well. Just our showers and how we let water run for this and this and that. And come to places like here where people water their grass every other day in Canada. And you come here and there is no grass because of how hot and how little water there is. And it's just, yeah, it's just a different way of, of living and it's crazy because it's like a five hour flight. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's just completely mind boggling. So, looks a little bit scary from here, but um, yeah, I actually wonder sometimes like, you know, how are these man-made structures causing issues downstream, you know, so like putting a big, yeah, putting a big dam on a, huge lake and a river right so you're kind of stopping the natural flow of the water so we were just talking about it yeah. i mean it's, it's kind of crazy looking at the like the water level you know the historic water level and where it is now and just like you know how how low lake mead is tourists on the memorial day weekend at the hoover dam One of the greatest spectacles in the United States is the Grand Canyon. And when you're driving through that region, it's it's pretty flat and it's desert and it's beautiful. But all of a sudden, you come to this amazing canyon, which has been eroded or downcut into what we call the Colorado Plateau over the last 70 million years, exposing all these beautiful rocks and creating this amazing canyon. And when you stand at the top of the canyon, you look down and you see the tiny little ribbon of water, which is the Colorado River. But we're in the Anthropocene now. And 
geologic processes record all of our activities, record what's happening in the environment, so that you know, a million years from now, whatever sort of life form is out there can look back and say, oh, this is what was happening. And what is recorded in the Anthropocene is the widespread disregard for the environment, the massive injection of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and other dangerous greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And really, I think whoever is around, whether it's humans or, again, some other life form, is going to look back and say, what the hell were these people thinking? They, like, literally killed themselves. Maybe they're going to look back and think that our brains were pretty tiny or weren't as evolved as uh, they should be because we obviously are following a pathway towards self-destruction. California, Nevada, and Arizona promised this spring to reduce what they take over the next three years by about 3 million acre-feet, buying a little bit more time. But now we're recording the hottest worldwide temperatures this planet has ever seen. For each degree Celsius, the Colorado River Basin rises. 9% of the water evaporates. And back in 1922, when we divvied up the Colorado, no one was accounting for that. The way we're sucking back its water today is completely unsustainable. Once Lake Powell and Lake Mead lose more water, their turbines stop. No more hydroelectricity. When the Colorado drops below that, the river gets stuck behind the dams. Deadpool. Even with cuts in allocations, even with Phoenix limiting expansion, even with a sustained mega drought, we're still taking more water than this river can give. We drink and wash with the Colorado's water in Denver, in Salt Lake City, Albuquerque, San Diego, LA, Las Vegas, Tucson, Phoenix. We're bleeding water for 40 million people dry. Honestly, this will not change if we keep prioritizing irrigating millions of acres of hay and alfalfa in the Colorado River Basin. This, this is some alfalfa that we bailed up just a couple days ago. There's a, that's about probably a 300, 300 tons of alfalfa. That, that'll go to the dairies for, for milking. And then, then we end up with kind of summer hay, and, it, and then that either goes to feedlots or to dry cow or to other, other you know, to export. Remember how I said Megan drove along the Colorado earlier this spring? She drove until she arrived at Larry Cox's farm near Brawley at the end of the Colorado River in the heart of California's Imperial Valley. Land growing the Imperial Irrigation District's biggest hay crop, alfalfa. How much land do you have here? Uh, we farm about 4,000 acres. Cool, and how much of that is alfalfa? Oh, probably about 25%. Okay, so what's, we, what's the rest of it? Well, we have a year-round iceberg lettuce, romaine, green leafy greens program. You know, we, we grow product down here in the wintertime, basically from all oh, Thanksgiving to the 1st of April. And then we have an operation in the Salinas Valley, and then we've sourced product out of Yuma and San Joaquin Valley. So we go you know, year-round leafy greens, year-round bull bunions, 
here and then Tracy and then Echo Oregon we have a year you know, so we do your own bull bunions and then we also do you know sedan grass alfalfa Bermuda grass uh, Klein grass sugar beets wheat dehydrator onions and we have a we have a citrus operation also I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times but why alfalfa and it's not just alfalfa about half of our acres down here is forage crops alfalfa Bermuda grass, Klein grass, those are our main, and they've got a tef grass. Alfalfa, number one, it's a legume, which means it makes its own nitrogen. Uh, number two, it, it's a good quality for feed to where it has high protein, high total digestible nutrients. Uh, number three, it's a perennial to where I can leave it in there for three or four years. Number four, it's, you know, it's in demand. So we're able to be mechanized, to be efficient, We've got affordable water, we don't have to pump it. So we're able to compete with most areas on forage crops where, uh, you know, up in Colorado, they might have a production time frame from the 1st of May to the middle of October. They might get four to five tons per acre. It may be all quality hay, but we're able to pretty much produce alfalfa year round. We might get, you know, nine to 11 tons per acre. And, you know, and we have affordable water, but it does take, you know, it does take a fair amount of water. My family used to farm up in the Orange County area by, uh, you know, uh, Disneyland area. And I used to farm up in that area and then also by Long Beach. And then my dad had to make a decision of where to move when the city moved in. Mm -hmm. And so he moved, chose to move down here in the early 1950s. So yeah, I was born, born and raised here. When your dad was making the decision to come out this way, what made him say, like, the Imperial Valley is it? This is where we got to be. Uh, well, two things. Number one was the, the senior water rights, the gravity system, which made it uh, irrigation water uh, affordable and efficiency. And at that time, um, after World War II, the commodity prices were very high. This was a very prosperous place at that time. Larry Cox owns land with some of the most senior water rights out there. The Colorado River was divided up just over 100 years ago with one principle in mind. First in use, first in right. When there's a drought, newer junior users see their water cut first. And so, you know, back in the, you know, the, in the 20s, uh, you know, Colorado was going, hey, you know, we, we produce most of the water for the Colorado up here, but, you know, we, we think California and Arizona are going to take it all. And so that's when they had the, uh, the, the Seven Basin States Treaty, and they divided the river up between Upper Basin and Lower Basin. And so they, I believe that they, yeah, I think they had a pretty good idea that they were over allocating the river when they when they divided up. But I think in order to get so many all, all the states, in order that for that get them to agree, they had to kind of over allocate it. And they said, hey, you know, we'll be good, you know, good for a hundred years, and then they can figure it out after that. And uh, and then then in the in the late 90s they started worrying about, you know, the the lakes are we got we got to do more more cutting and moving. They had what's called the quantification settlement agreement and said California was taking too much water. And they basically, I wouldn't say they, I wouldn't say they put a gun to our heads as, as water users down here, but they, they, they made it pretty difficult for us to not cooperate. So what does that mean for you personally? Um, what that did is that, that took us from an elastic water right, and it took Imperial Valley down to 3.1 million acre feet. And so this is what you get. 
and it didn't give us the it didn't give us we lost any flexibility and so it said okay you, you know if the if the lakes were in decent shape we could overrun and underrun but we would have to pay back any overrun and we we know that our water usage goes up and down depending on rains or heat or cropping and i said wait a minute i said we're going to lose any elasticity and so they said yeah I said so they said if you overrun you're going to have to pay that back but you don't get any credit for an underrun and I said, well, that's un-American. And I said, no, I said, I said, we need a five or 10 year rolling average. And we couldn't get that. And that, and that was, you know, that is still a bone of contention down here because we, we don't have a savings account. And this is a, this is an industry that runs on really tight margins. Uh, yes. Yes. And, and, a, and a finite water source. And we don't have uh, potable groundwater down here because you know, the valley here used to kind of alternate between salt water the the gulf would open up and the it would be so we'd be under 100 feet of seawater or periodically the colorado river would flow in here and fill things up into the ancient lake kuia our groundwater is it's too salty to use for for irrigation water or drinking water sure so so the only source of water we have is the colorado river but you know we do have senior water rights but now you know like okay how do you how do you quantify how much you're saving what do you get paid uh, we've got the irrigation district that holds the water rights and trust for the landowner and the land, but they're a publicly elected board, and we only have one farmer on there now, and they, they run the power department. They're not worried about us being able to compete. It's difficult and expensive to farm in California, and it's getting more so. Lake Mead and Lake Powell, you know, have just, they declined precipitously in 2021 and 2022, and the Bureau was behind the curve on cutting the junior water right holders and said, okay, it'll be better, it'll be better, and it wasn't. So finally, uh, you know, a summer ago, we need two to four million acre feet a year. Uh, <laughs> so instead of going, hey, you know, we need 500,000 acre feet starting two, two or three years earlier, the lakes have been pretty much, you know, off and on decline since the year 2000. And the Bureau was kind of like, well, we'll deal with it, we'll deal with it. And everything that they did between the quantification settlement, the surplus guidelines, the drought contingency plan was not enough and too slow. Are there also drawbacks to do it, to adopting some of these newer technologies? Oh, like, yeah. Like drip and that can you tell me a little bit about that yeah the, the, the main issue is that we have a, a lot of these things we have to pressurize so if we put a sprinkler system out we've got to run diesel pumps or electric pumps and we don't we don't have what they call three-phase power in a lot of our valleys so we have to put sprinkler pumps which you know diesel prices in california are like you know almost you know five dollars a gallon yeah i'm waiting to get gas to like a uh, thank you. Yeah. On our ranch, we may use 15,000 gallons of diesel a month. And so, okay, so that's a, that's a tax of $15,000 that Arizona doesn't have to pay. A sprinkler system now costs about $4,000 an acre, and it's a portable system of aluminum pipe, like a big jigsaw puzzle. So, you know, so you have to buy that, then you have to have people put it out there, then you have to, you know, clean it up and manage it. And how long does drip tape last? It depends on how you do it. You know, ideally we can get two turns out of it, but a lot of this stuff, it, it only will last one crop. And if, and if you're going to try to get multiple uses out of it, you have to go with a thicker, more durable drip tape, mm -hmm. you know, where we have more labor and, and more uh, affordable labor, we're able to reuse drip down there in, in Mexico more than we do here. And now the, a lot of the times the cost of what it take, costs us to do it doesn't justify us to do it. So we're having conversations with our with our irrigation district board about saying, hey, look, you know, we're not, you're not, 
And the, the IID has, you know, several hundred million dollars in reserves now. Or like, you know, you can't keep taking money from these transfers and not putting it back into the farmer's hands to conserve the water. Like, and so you've got Nevada Water Authority and, and Central Arizona Project and Metropolitan or the junior water rights holder. We were saying, we're actually it was more Nevada than the other ones, but like, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to grow alfalfa with, with precious water. Okay, and, and, and these are 120-year-old water rights. They're archaic. They need to be changed. That's like, you know, you know your neighbor saying, hey, I've got five kids. You only have one. I need your, I need your driveway and bedrooms more than you do, so they, you need to give them to me. And instead of going, hey, uh, can I rent a room from you, or can I, can I rent a space to park my car, or you know, can I add a room on? And they're, they're changing terminology Instead of saying it's, it's, it's a drought, okay, now it's a rootification. And the law of the river was, was, okay, if we have a drought and the levels of the reservoir go down, here's how things are done. Okay, wait. And, there, and so you've got people that are going, wait a minute, a rootification is different than drought. Okay, well, no, it's not. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's still effective the same thing. If we have a rootification, you've got less water in the reservoir, so the cuts need to go the same thing. And then you've got other people who are saying, okay, well, the cities need health and safety water. I said, okay. And they're saying that, you know, that should come above senior water rights and we shouldn't have to pay for it. And I said, okay, I don't think as agriculture, I said, we shouldn't have to give up water from our ranches and damage our communities, you know, so that they can have koi ponds and parks and golf courses and lush lawns in uh, Beverly Hills. And like we we recognize that we have an issue. We recognize that there's going to be there's going to need to be transfers from senior ag users to junior urban users, but it's got to be at a price that benefits our farms and our communities and not damage them. That was Larry Cox. He's an alfalfa grower in California's Imperial Valley. Our thanks to Megan Miskowski, who was out there with him. No matter how you cut it, farm use accounts for nearly 80% of the water we take from the Colorado River. In today's changing climate, how much sense does it make to farm crops like alfalfa in the desert? Are there solutions? Sarah Porter and Dan Putnam have been listening in here on What About Water? Sarah Porter is the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. She's also a lawyer. Dan Putnam is an agriculture professor at UC Davis. He spent his career researching alfalfa and forage crops. They both join me now. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Dan. Hi. Hello. Where where to begin, Sarah? (laughs) I think uh, Mr. Cox has some important points there. So my big high-level thought is that we have what we have in agriculture in the U.S. Southwest because of national policies that got us to where we are. And I agree with him that, you know, we need to undo the parts of those national policies that have created water insecurity and unsustainable water management, but it doesn't have to be on the backs of farmers simply because they're responsible for more consumptive use of water than any other sector. We have to find ways of getting there that that doesn't punish farmers for, you know, the fact that they've inherited this legacy of put every acre of land that we can under the plow. Dan, 
Any uh, overall thoughts? You know, I think a lot of times people are surprised by how much water agriculture uses. And most of the urban use is also in landscaping. It's not really in, in flushing the toilet. Uh, and plants use a lot of water that are productive plants, plants that are high yielding and, and produce uh, food, require lots of water. So so the challenge, I think, is not, you know, do we have a an alfalfa problem or a, or a Bermuda grass problem or a, even a veg crop problem? Keep in mind that this farmer moved her veg crop operations up to the Salinas Valley because you cannot produce broccoli in July in, in Imperial Valley or Yuma, Arizona. So, you know, you say, well, why doesn't everybody do drip, you know, irrigation? Well, the fact is that a gravity-fed system like that has a lot of advantages, particularly in terms of carbon and, and uh, fossil fuel use. We've done a lot of re research on trying to get buried drip to work in alfalfa. And do you know, Jay and Sarah, what the biggest problem with that is? Tell us. Alfalfa is such a good wildlife habitat that gophers and mice can destroy a buried drip irrigation system within about uh, three to four, you know, several years. So, Sarah, I wanted to get back to you. You know, you were saying we need to change national policies, but you're not suggesting we just throw them out, right? No, because what Mr. Cox, even when he was talking about the priority system, He's talking about important rules of economic security and, and rules of predictability that whole communities are built on. So we can't throw out the Colorado Compact and the law of the river and come up with some new system. It would be incredibly disruptive. We need to figure out ways of transformation that I think are maybe at bigger increments than some people would like that can get us to a place where we're not, you know, we've been in this danger zone with the Colorado River for a long time, and we need to figure out a way to get out of that danger zone. And the way we get out of that danger zone is by reducing the amount of water we take out of the river as a region, as seven states and 29 tribes and Mexico. So Dan, what do you think about that? I, I think most of the agricultural community in Southern California that I've been discussing these issues with, uh, you know, fully understand the challenge of the Colorado River and, and know that they're going to have to uh, come to the table, give up using some of the water that they've used. They just don't want to go out of business and they don't want to threaten their local communities because, you know, a complete following or, or you know, some people have stated, well, we just do away with, with certain kinds of crops or even all of agriculture in this desert Southwest. I mean, I've heard that uh, quoted, you know, and the fact is that I think that's a really short-sighted, I mean, that this is a worldwide issue. This is not just an issue in the desert Southwest. You know, I've been traveling quite a bit in Africa and in the Middle East, and the reason that we have exported you know, hay to other countries is a question of resources within those countries. And so the questions we have to ask ourselves is the sustainability of irrigated agricultural and water systems, and how sustainable are they? Because in theory, they are sustainable. Now, in actual fact, are they? Well, that's that's a supply and demand question, right? So, but uh, hydraulics cycles are a part of nature, and uh, and in other words, we 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 do have uh, snowfall and rainfall, and highly variable. That's the problem. So, I think it's more than simply variability at this point. I, we have, you know, we have a right. pretty. It seems to me as a lawyer, not a climatologist, but I think we have a pretty 
good data set that should point us toward aridification in the Colorado River. We, we already know it's overallocated. We, we know that. Uh, we never accounted for evaporation and system loss, which Jay mentioned. We allocated out more than the river produces annually, and we're feeling that now because many Colorado River water users have developed their supply. They've they've put it. They finally figured out a way to take that water and use it, so they're not leaving water in the system. And the only solution set that we have control of right now is to use less. I agree 100%. Colorado River Basin is is drying out. There's there's no going back to to the old days. So we have to do things more efficiently. Mr. Cox indicated that he thought the bureau was was too slow to respond and I, you know, my impression was that it was just the states couldn't come together on their own. I love that Mr. Cox thinks it's up to the Bureau of Reclamation because that would be license for the federal government to go outside of priority to make cuts. The Bureau has been following a combination of two agreements, the Drought Contingency Plan and the 2007 guidelines, in making cuts as agreed when Lake Mead falls to certain elevations. And there is a huge legal question about whether or not the Bureau has authority to make any additional cuts outside of the DCP and the 2007 guidelines. And the DCP is the Drought Contingency Plan. Right. So I have to ask this question about alfalfa. Of all the water in California, all the water in every river and lake and stream and the groundwater, a full 80% of the water that we extract as humans is used for agriculture. That means we're turning an awful lot of our water into alfalfa bales and shipping those bales to places like China and Saudi Arabia. So the question is, is that how we want to be using our shrinking water supply? Uh, Alfalfa is a, a large annual water user. However, if you were to grow spinach 365 days a year, you would probably use about the same amount of water, if not a little bit more, because, you know, you have 10 crops of spinach or 15 crops of spinach during that time. So I guess there's two questions there. One is, is it good to export anything, right? (laughs) Any agricultural product. So that's, that's one of the questions. The other question is, in terms of resources, is alfalfa a good crop to have in a water limited environment? The whole question of, in fact, this has come across in the rhetoric is, you know, exporting hay to Saudi Arabia yeah, uh, and actually ownership of farms in Arizona and California by the Saudis and uh, the Chinese that are buying a lot of our hay and uh, this idea that, you know, we're shipping water, you know, it, it's uh, where growers are growing for markets. And, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're growing, say, if we produce a crop in California and ship the wine over to Phoenix, that's exporting water <laughs> or to New York. And I love avocados and too avocados, much there to you think go, about you know? virtual water. <laughs> and, you know, we, and, and so I find that the whole concept of virtual water, uh, you know, which has been in the literature, you see it in the literature and so forth, I find that. I find it to be, you know, like I say, it sort of falls apart. So, yeah, I'd just like to add one thing myself, and that is people really don't understand how much water it takes to produce food. 
and we all yeah. love to eat. But from a global water sustainability perspective that you were just talking about, we want to be eating for hundreds and thousands of years. And so we have to figure out how we can do a better job to make this sustainable, the food security, the water security, not just for 2030, yeah. but for, you know, 2930. Um, and I know we don't yeah. think out that far, but, we're you know, we need to be thinking about long-term sustainability and exactly that, how to grow, how to grow more with less. And that's just our reality. And we're, we're there. And it's not just in Arizona. It's not just in California. It's around the world. So let's keep in mind also that biologically alfalfa can be deficit irrigated. So you can stop irrigating the crop to, you know, we've had experiments that we've been doing for the last basically 15 or 20 years that show that you can deficit irrigate a crop, say starting in July, and you still get 60, 70% of a full yield. Most crops, if you reduce the water applications by 20, 30, 40, 50%, you have crop failures, right? <laughs> so in face of drought, we can deficit irrigate this crop and still sustain agricultural production and food production in these regions. Okay, so let me follow up on that. How important is the scale of alfalfa production that we have in the United States to the food security of the United States. Pretty important. First of all, Dan, I appreciate, I, we've been doing a study of why farmers in central Arizona are overwhelmingly growing alfalfa and other forage crops. And there are a lot of reasons. And surely if you are the farmer, and especially if you are not sure about how long you'll be farming your lands, you're not sure about your water supply, alfalfa, tr triticale, other forage crops make a great choice. From the grower's perspective, it's, it's incredibly rational. The discussion about alfalfa is something of a distraction because if for some reason we told farmers no more alfalfa, or maybe we all began boycotting ice cream and steak, and so the market would drop for alfalfa, farmers would use the water that they have rights to to grow something else. And so the issue to me isn't alfalfa. The issue is how do we get to a place where farmers who are responsible for about 75% of the consumptive use of water from the Colorado River significantly reduce the amount of water that is being used and preferably do that in a way that still keeps a lot of lands in production. Um, we mm. have not, I mean, you touched on this, Dan, but the reason I worry about future policy solutions is because places like Yuma and Imperial Valley are, you know, unique climates, hot, dry places near a river. And that is, those are really good places to grow fresh fruits and vegetables. And if we take them out of production, it's not clear to me where, you know, where we can make up for that production. So to me, the issue isn't alfalfa. I get it. I, you know, it's, it's so interesting and people love to demonize it. The issue is really that we have this huge commitment to Colorado River water for agriculture in the U.S. Southwest. And it's very hard to reduce that commitment. I think 
agriculture in general is on board with the issue that we have to address the, the water supply issue in the Colorado watershed. I think most growers that I've talked with had, are fully on board with that. But I think we have to think about cropping systems. There's a biological and an economic value of having rotations. And so the fact is veg crops, as high value as they are, are also very high risk. So you have crops that, that are, can fail biologically through disease uh, real quickly, and they're you know, typically very short season crops. I've seen fields where they have to plow them under. What's the water use efficiency of that, right? Whereas you have what I call bread and butter crops, like the triticale and the alfalfa and the wheat. There's a reason we do agriculture in these regions, and, and you need to have those crop rotations. Being a nitrogen fixer, we have to think about the fossil fuel subsidies of agriculture as well and uh, reducing the amount of fertilizer that we are threatening our groundwater with, for example. Agriculture needs to learn how to develop productive food systems with less resources. So let's, let's pivot to that. What kind of incentives do we need? Sarah, I'll... I'll, I'll start with you. They could be policy incentives. They could be financial incentives. How do we work with farmers who have, you know, we heard from Larry Cox about the investment in shifting, you know, away from flood irrigation to something that's more efficient. What do we need to do? Yeah, I think it starts with everybody walking the talk. There are plenty of people who live in cities that are pointing the finger at alfalfa. And he likewise talked about the koi ponds and the, and the lush lawns. And, and I understand that. I understand why people on both sides want to, to demonize something that, you know, another water user's doing. Those optics make people super sore and they ruin negotiations. And I think second, it is programs where the people who have the most to lose in the case of, let's say, Deadpool, where no more water can be delivered off the reservoirs, begin to look at how they can make the people that they're asking to sacrifice water whole. This isn't so difficult. I know it's complicated, but cities have a lot of people and the ability to pull together great sums of money for water, for water infrastructure, water supplies, water resilience. We need to figure out ways for people who live in cities to be subsidizing farmers or investing in crop efficiency so that we can get to the place where less water is going to agriculture. Dan, how about you? Closing thoughts on that on that question? Yeah, I think there's some principles there that most agriculturalists would agree with. You know, uh, most of the crops that are grown in, in Yuma and, and Southern California are pretty free market crops. They're growing for markets. Alfalfa really does not have other than, you could argue points about other kinds of subsidies, but in terms of crop subsidies, these are not highly subsidized crops. And, and Yeah. And I didn't mean, I, I didn't mean to imply that, yeah. that they were subsidized. What I meant is we have to subsidize the water efficiency. Well, I think a lot of growers, and you know, there's some technological, you know, I don't want to call them fixes, but technological mm -hmm. progress that we could make with say, Automated uh, flood irrigation, which is an ability to take a lot of the guesswork out of, you know, redesigning flood irrigation so it's more efficient, but also integrating on some soil types, you know, drip makes more sense or overhead sprinklers make more sense. But as Mr. Cox pointed out, you have an energy requirement there. So how do you deal with that? And 
So they, these are all solutions to produce more crop per drop. And that should be really the philosophy here. Hey, hey, um, I have a uh, important question that comes from Larry Cox's recording. What the heck is a bull bunion? I must know. Bulb. Bulb. bulb oh, a bulb onion. onion. <laughs> a bulb onion. Not like a male cow. You were thinking of a, of a difficulty perfect. on a male cow's foot, weren't you? <laughs> Poor bulls. <laughs> yeah, 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 I was going to say. Bunions. A bunion. A bulb bunion. That is, yeah, there we go. That is just yeah, amazing. Kind of I, I love that. That is a perfect way to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks, Dan. So glad you could be here on What About Water. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you, Jay. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Dan Putnam is an agriculture professor and extension agronomist at UC Davis. Sarah Porter is a lawyer and the director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. Although I used to be a rocket scientist, this is not rocket science at all. How do we shrink the global demand for incredibly thirsty alfalfa? We eat less beef and dairy, and farmers will respond by switching to some other higher demand crop. Even without changes in global demand, we simply must grow alfalfa more efficiently. That means shifting away from wasteful flood irrigation to more efficient sprinklers and drip irrigation. And that means government incentives, loans, tax breaks, subsidized irrigation equipment, major on-field infrastructure changes, and more, so that farmers are not taking the hit here. Finally, public opinion has a huge role here. Consider that about 3 million acres of alfalfa grown in the American West each year. Those 3 million acres require between 9 and 18 million acre-feet of water annually. Now consider that about a third of that alfalfa is exported to China, Japan, and Saudi Arabia. That means that each year, a virtual pipeline exports 3 to 6 million acre-feet of the Colorado River Basin surface and groundwater to those countries. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. That's America's water, and most of it is never coming back. Let's think very carefully about who gains and who loses from this massive annual water transfer and whether this is something that we should be continuing in the coming decades. When the water's not there, let's not be acting like it is. That's it for this episode of What About Water, the first of two summer special episodes about the Colorado River. 
got a question for me, any thoughts you'd like to share, email ideas at whataboutwater.org. We recorded this episode of What About Water at the University of Saskatchewan with the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. Our producers are Megan Miskowski and Jen Cannell at Cascade Communications. Wayne Giesbrecht is our studio engineer. Our fact checker is Taysha Garby. We had important help from Daniel Harridge, Fred Rebin, and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Famoyetti. Thanks for listening.